Lord, um, the things of this world are sometimes very shiny. Uh, they promise a lot of things that really they can't live up to. And uh, our only hope is in you. And so, Lord, we thank you for, uh, for your salvation, which has made it possible for us to have a relationship with you, to have our sins forgiven, to be granted eternal life, to be part of your household, um, to have our identity rearranged, to no, to no longer be what we do, what, we, what we've done or what has been done to us or what people say we are, but to have our identity in Christ. It's an amazing privilege. We thank you so much. And Lord, we ask that uh, your Holy Spirit would help us to uh, pay attention this morning to your word, that uh, you would... Um, Help us to not just learn some interesting facts, but Lord, that uh, your word would transform our hearts, our lives, and we would live in light of its amazing truth. I thank you again for this time. It's all for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we are in December. And uh, I love this, personally, I love this season. I love the colors. I love the decorations. The ladies did a good job at the decorations, didn't they? Uh, so thank you, ladies, for doing that. I uh, love the music. I love the traditions. Um, but uh, to be honest, all those things, as nice as they are, aren't significant enough to really spend an entire month celebrating. The significance is really the reason for the season, which that is uh, Jesus. Jesus, that ca he came into this world as uh, the long-awaited Messiah. He came as the Savior. And so we're going to be focusing in on that for the next few weeks. And we're going to be looking uh, at some sections, some moments in the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke. Um, now, I come from a, a, a nerdy sci-fi persuasion, and so whenever I say Luke, I, it's really hard for me not to say, Luke, the Bible says I am your father. Um, <laughs> but anyways, it wasn't written by Luke Skywalker, just to let you know. But uh, anyways, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be, our passage is going to be in chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. So it's a lengthy passage. We're going to try to capture as, uh, as much as we can. But before we get to Luke chapter 1, I might want to work our way up there. So if you have your Bibles, go to Isaiah chapter 40. Old Testament, prophet Isaiah chapter 40. So Isaiah chapter 40. So the way our Bibles begin is uh, bo first book of the Bible, book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it reads, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I love Moses, who's the author of Genesis. He doesn't just, he doesn't go into this big, huge dissertation on the existence of God, like proving that God exists. He just automatically says, God, God is real, better accept it. And, and, and this God created this space and he fills it with creation just by simply speaking it into existence. It, it, he didn't just grab what was already existing and then make something out of it. No, he created it out of nothing. Just by saying, let there be light and there was light. I mean, he even created light even before there was a, 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 a sun. 
and stars. So that just boggles your mind. That's how awesome God is. So he creates uh, this, this world, this universe, and everything he creates, he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. He creates Adam. He says, well, it's not good that Adam be alone, but he fixes that, and he gives uh, Adam Eve, his wife. And then at the very end of, of chapter 1, verse 31, it says, and God saw everything. Oops. Ah, God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. Jim Stone likes to say, God don't make no junk. He doesn't. Everything he makes is good. And, and, and what we get in, in the biblical account is um, God didn't just create this very good universe and this earth and humanity and then say, okay, you, good job, you guys. Here you go, and I'm going to go ahead and do something amazing in this part of the universe. What we see is God intimately involved in his creation, literally dwelling among his people. In, in, in chapter 3 of Genesis, we, we get a picture of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and I, that blows my mind. I don't even know how that looks. God, the creator God, the spirit, he walking in the garden. But it kind of gives you a picture of the relationship that God had with Adam and Eve. It was this close, unfiltered, intimate relationship one-on-one relationship. It was very, very good. The Hebrews uh, would later call this idea, this, 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 this creation as shalom, peace, this all-encompassing goodness and prosperity, favor, and blessing. But eventually we get to chapter three and the serpent comes into the garden. And later in, in, uh, in the New Testament uh, revelation, the serpent is revealed to as Satan, the enemy of God and his people. And Satan comes and he approaches uh, uh, the, the, the woman Eve and he has a dialogue with her. And unless we think that Adam was somewhere else, Adam was right there with her. He was sitting, standing right there beside. And so the serpent says, you know, did God really say not to eat from this particular tree in the garden? And he goes on to say, you know, God, you, if you eat from it, you're not going to die, even though God said that, but you're not going to die. Basically, God lied to you. God knows that if you eat from it, you'll be just like him. In other words, he's holding out on you. You can't trust him. And what happens is our our first parents, Adam and Eve, they accept that lie. They take part in that fruit. They eat of it, and uh, sin comes into the world. Now, God is holy in the sense when we say he's holy, he he is separate from us, separate from all of his creation and the fact that he is perfect, that he is good. In in 1 John, it says that in him is light and there is no darkness. He is the source of all goodness and love. but, But not only is God holy, but he's also just. Now, that word just and justice has been really messed up last two years, particularly with critical, critical theory, critical race theory, social justice movement. The, the way the word means, in biblically speaking, is to do what is right. That's what just is. Justice is to do what is right, and what is right conforms with God's holy and righteous standard, standards. So when we say that God is just, God does what is right. God reflects his holy and righteous standards. And because he is just, he has to deal with sin. He can't just brush it underneath the, uh, the carpet and say, oh, I'll pretend it's not there. And we'll move on. No, God has to adjust, uh, uh, address the sin. Now, he had every right after an Adam and Eve disobeyed him. He had every right to just snap his fingers and poof, they're gone. Like Adam and Eve, I gave you each other. You know, I gave you this perfect, beautiful world to live in, to grow in, and to multiply, be fruitful and multiply. And you do the one thing I told you not to do. That's it, you're gone. 
He could have done that. But to show his mercy, he allows Adam and Eve to live, but unfortunately, their life that they're going to live is not the way God wanted them to live it. They're going to live not in a perfect world, but in a sin-cursed world. They're going to live lives not perfectly um, reflecting the image of God, but they're going to live uh, a life that is cursed by, because of sin. Their relationship with each other is going to be messed up, and most importantly, their relationship with God is going to be frustrated as well. So this is really bad news. But even in the midst of that bad news, God gives some hope. He's talking, he speaks directly to the serpent, God's enemy, the enemy of God and enemy of God's people. He speaks to the serpent and says, out of the woman, a descendant is going to come. Someone's going to come and you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to bruise your head. Now, some translations will say he's going to in- injure your heel, but you're going to crush his head. In other words, you know, the, the, the enemy is going to inflict some kind of injury on this individual who's up, going to be coming. But this individual is going to, deliver a death blow to the serpent and so then the rest of the account continues on and it's very clear it's not the world that god originally created you read about someone lived so many years and then he died and then another person lived so many years and then they died and then so on and so forth and then you can you see pain and sorrow and and evil just all over the place and you think, okay, well, God, how, how, how is this going to happen? What, what's, how are you going to fulfill your, your promises? And, and God's at work even in the midst of this darkness that's happening. And eventually he, he uh, um, rises up uh, uh, prophets, individuals who have authority and are given uh, his words to declare to the people. And uh, we come to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet of, of the Lord, and God gave him a message to deliver to his people, the people of Israel. And uh, for a, a big chunk of the words that God has Isaiah say are, are, are words of rebuke to the people. The people, God, God established this, this nation, and he was, uh, was going to bless them uniquely bless them work in their in them and they were to be devoted to to god completely and god was going to bless them and they in turn were going to be a blessing to the nations but unfortunately israel lost that uh that purpose and they started disobeying god following after other gods and really some of the language is like you're you're playing the harlot i was your husband you're 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 doing that some of the prophets bring up a lot of other imagery for their uh, disobedience and and so there's rebuke and so isaiah's saying, you know, God's going to judge you. God's going to punish you and send you into exile. And it's not going to be very pleasant. It's going to be bad. But yet, even in the midst of this bad news, God gives hope. And so we get to chapter 40 of Isaiah, starting at verse 1. It says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. That's a great way to start, right? All this bad stuff. And then comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem, And call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her guilt has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hands double for all of her sins. In other words, that uh, the punishment that uh, they caused on themselves because of their disobedience to, to the Lord is going to be coming to an end. Verse three, the voice of one calling out, clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the uneven ground become a plain 
and the rugged terrain, a broad valley. What I find fascinating is um, back in this ancient times, even in the first century, the, the wilderness and the desert was definitely not a place you would really want to spend a lot of time in. There was you know, a lot of threats, dangers, dangers of you know, dying in the elements, cold, heat, dying of thirst, dying of hunger, dying from thieves who would be hiding in the rocks, dying from wild animals. And uh, later on, um, the, the, this idea, this image of, of, or imagery of the wilderness and desert, many uh, poets and other writers would use it to refer to bad portions of history or even the life that we live in. We live in this wilderness, this place that's just full of a lot of danger and hostility. It's not that great. And I find it fascinating because here he's saying make uh, a, a way is going to be cleared in the wilderness and in the desert, in this place that is, that is uh, horrible and the Lord is going to be coming. Uh, verse five, the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Go ahead and skip over to the, the book of Malachi. Malachi is the last Old Testament book. So some will say that this is the Italian prophet Malachi. And uh, this is why you guys come here, right? You get what you pay for. Um, so <laughs> Malachi, we're in Malachi or Malachi. And uh, so if you were in Matthew, hang a left and you'll find Malachi. Uh, Malachi chapter three, I want to start at Malachi chapter three, starting at verse one. Now you're going to hear some imagery, some words that sound very familiar to Isaiah. Behold, I'm sending my messenger and he will clear a way before me. And the Lord whom you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. Now skip over to chapter 4. The last two verses of chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, for those of you unfamiliar, um, Elijah was a prophet uh, uh, many, many, many years ago from this who was empowered by the Holy Spirit and did some incredible things on behalf of God. He actually didn't die. He got the VIP uh, treatment. He got... Uh, uh, picked up by Uber, a heavenly Uber, to heaven. It was a fiery chariot. Um, and so the idea was he's going to come back. And for, for a lot of the people in the, the Jews in the first century, I uh, had this understanding, Elijah's coming back. So many other synagogues would actually have an empty seat that was reserved for Elijah. Um, so the Lord's saying he's going to bring Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. That's what people have been waiting for. He will turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Hearts is, is in, in, in this, this word for hearts, the idea of your inner being. It's who you are. It's your, the, the seat of your intellect, your passions, your desires. Uh, um, and, and, and so the, the hearts of the fathers are going to be directed to the children. Children's hearts are going to be directed to the fathers, going to be united. There's going to be whatever is going to happen. The, God's going to come and he's going to bring some good things, even reconciliation, so that I will not come and strike the land with complete destruction. The lights seem to went down a little bit. It's because my voice is very powerful, right? Now, in my Bibles, my Bibles, my Bible, um, 
I have, uh, here's, here's my Malachi, and I have one page that says, uh, uh, I have one page that says New Testament, and you turn the page, and there's the Gospel of Matthew. A lot of your Bibles probably have the same thing. You turn the page, now you're, you're transitioning from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Now, that simple turning of the page represents about 400 years of history. From the end of Malachi to the birth of Jesus, that represents 400 years. Of, I think that's a long time. 400 years. Around that time, you have Alexander the Great trying to Hellenize the, the known world. You have um, uh, the, the, the birth of the Roman Empire. You have uh, Judas Maccabees uh, uh, causing a revolt against uh, uh, this one leader and, and it caused, you know, there's so many things that were happening during that time that we can read about in our world history. A lot of things going on. And yet, in the midst of all of that, God is silent. Some theologians will call this the silent years. Because even though God was still at work, because he's God and he's working, he's, he didn't just, oh, I'm taking a break. No, God was still working, but he was not doing the things that he used to do in the Old Testament. He wasn't raising up new uh, prophets to authoritatively declare his word. There were no supernatural signs that were happening. It was just silent. 400 years. Think about that. I mean, again, we think 20 years, 50 years, 100 years is a long time. 400 years. And the people of Israel are just wondering. You got, again, you've got to put yourself in their, in their shoes. They're, they're reading their Hebrew Bibles and they're seeing all the things that God has done and God has, what, what God has promised to do. And they're like, God, what gives? I mean, where are you? Do you not care? Have you forgotten? I mean, there's a lot of prophes- promises here, a lot of prophecies that have not been fulfilled. Where are you? And so many of them responded in different ways. Some actually chose to disbelieve uh, uh, the, the, the writings of, of their Hebrew Bible. Some chose to, to continue trusting and waiting. Um, others, uh, the, the, the leadership actually kind of started developing. We have one group uh, known as the, the Sadducees and, and, and the, their response to what was going on. Uh, they see, you know, God's not sending any prophets and the enemies of of the lord are just dominating rome is dominating everything and and so what the sadducees did is they they realized well if we can't beat them join them rome is the power so well let's go ahead and make some alliances with rome and many of those those alliances um actually favored them financially and so they're like oh this is actually a really good thing Another group of, of leaders uh, known as the Pharisees uh, responded differently. The, the word Pharisee actually comes from an Aramaic word that means the separated ones. They said, well, God's not, not answering us, not moving, um, because we need to follow the rules. We need to follow the letter to, of the law. We need to follow the oral traditions to the T, and God will see that, and then he will respond. Another group known as the Zealots were like, well, God's not working, so we need to do something. And maybe when we do something, then God will actually start doing things. But we got to, we, we got to, you know, we got to fight back against these enemies. And so they started to try to start insurrections, uh, cause a lot of violence during that time. Again, 400 years go by. And I'm going to repeat that because it's just really, you got to get your mind around that. 400 years of silence. 
And then all of a sudden, the silence breaks. Now we come to Luke. Luke chapter 1. So go there to the gospel of Luke chapter 1. Now, Luke is written by a guy named Luke. (gasps) So shocking. Not Luke Skywalker, another guy named Luke. Uh, Some traditions say that he was born in Antioch and he became a follower of Jesus during the ministry of Paul. Eventually, Luke accompanied Paul on his journeys uh, to proclaim the gospel. In Colossians, Paul refers to him as the beloved physician. So most likely that was his profession. He was a doctor, not a witch doctor. He was a doctor in the first century. Um, He was a very brilliant man, and we know that he's a brilliant man. Uh, If we were to read the the gospel of Luke in its original language, many scholars say that Luke presents some of the most refined and polished Greek they've ever seen. So this was a very intelligent man who's uh, writing this, uh, this account. And when we come to chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 is really in the Greek one long sentence, and it kind of uh, be, it becomes a prologue. It's kind of giving the reason why Luke is putting together this account uh, for us to read. And so let's go uh, to, to chapter 1, verse 1. And we read, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the beginning were, who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Basically what Luke is saying is, he, he's, he's acknowledging the fact that many individuals, uh, he says, have undertaken, they have endeavored, literally they put to hand, uh, put to the hand in recording and compiling a, a, a record, an account of all the things that Jesus accomplished. Now that word accomplished uh, is a word that means to bring to full measure or to fulfill. Now, one of the things that's just fascinating about Luke is um, Luke is, is writing this, uh, this account uh, really to a guy named Theophilus. Again, we don't know much about Theophilus. His name literally means a friend of God. Uh, most likely he was a, a, a Gentile and uh, did not have uh, probably, prob- probably, again, this is speculation, but probably did not have uh, a full, firm understanding of Judaism because of his background as a Gentile. And Luke must have also anticipated others reading his account that were not familiar with Judaism. And so what Luke, what Luke does is he constantly um, brings up the fact that this is all happening as a fulfillment of Jewish history. Like this is all, everything that was promised in, in the Hebrew Bible is, is being accomplished through this, this Jesus. And, and so he, he brings that up a lot using fulfillment and accomplished and uh, again, ad- addressing like this is how, the, this is what the Jews did uh, specifically because again, people were like, I, we don't know anything about Judaism. And so the, uh, Luke is, is bringing that up. So he's, he's acknowledging all these people, uh, individuals who, compiled and uh, uh, the works of Jesus. And he describes that they were witnesses. They were eyewitnesses 
of, of Jesus. So these are individuals who, who lived during Jesus' life, probably saw Jesus, spoke with Jesus, saw all the incredible things that were going on. And at, at this time, possibly uh, the Gospels of, of Mark and Matthew were already written, and so Luke might have been familiar with uh, those accounts as well. But he describes these eyewitnesses as servants of the Lord in, in verse 2. Now that word servants uh, isn't a typical slave, like doulos, which is translated slave. It's a word that means to serve a higher will. It, it means to, to, to it, it describes those who carry out orders of someone or something important. It was actually a, a, a real privilege, uh, a, ter- a, t- a term of privilege. Like it's an honor to be a servant of, of something. And these individuals, these eyewitnesses were privileged servants of the word, of the account of Jesus in proclaiming who Jesus was, what he did and uh, what he's continuing to do. And so in verse three, Luke is saying, well, it seemed fitting for me as well. Like I, I, it seemed like a good idea for me to also do this thing, but Luke was not an eyewitness. Instead, what Luke is going to do, he's going to become like Indiana Jones. He's going to become a researcher, a historian, and he's going to, he says he investigated everything carefully. The word investigated means to follow, uh, to faith, follow faithfully or to diligently check out. And when he uses the word uh, uh, investigated carefully, the word means to be with, with exactness. So what Luke is saying um, is, uh, you know, the, the, I, I'm, though I'm not an eyewitness, uh, I went and actually spoke, investigated, and I actually spoke to these people. The time that, that uh, Luke wrote his account was probably a few decades after Jesus' uh, life and death and resurrection. And so many of the eyewitnesses were still around. And so Luke is like, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to travel and I'm going to interview. I'm going to faithfully, diligently check out everything that these witnesses have said from the horse's mouth, so to speak. So I'm going to go down to this city because that's where Mary is. Jesus's mother, and I'm going to talk to her, and I'm going to ask her some questions, get her, her first-person account. Then I'm going, to, I'm going to go also, oh, Mary and Martha, they're still alive. I'm going to go talk to them. I'm going to go ahead and talk to Lazarus. I'm going to go ahead and talk to John, the apostle. I'm going to talk to this person who saw Jesus when he was risen from the dead. I'm going to talk to this person who was actually touched by Jesus. I'm going to talk to them. And that's what Paul's doing. He's like, I mean, Luke is doing, so I'm going to go out and investigate this. I've investigated this. I investigated this carefully with exactness from the beginning. It says, and to, and I've, he's written it out in a consecutive order. Now, when he says that consecutive order, it does not necessarily mean that all the events are recorded in exact chronological sequence in which they occurred, but that the account is actually, it's an orderly account. And this could include, for example, um, uh, a, a topical or thematic order instead of a strict uh, chronological um, way of writing. And this is kind of the way they did things back then. Uh, they would take a, a, a period of time and they would say, okay, this, the, all these events happened. And what they would do is they would structure it in such a way that if it had a different uh, a thematic, if it was thematic, close to the same theme or the topic, they would arrange them together so they could kind of prove a point. It's not to say that they're making all this stuff up because th- this is real stuff that they're, they're, they're talking about, but they're just arranging it a little bit different. They're arranging it in an orderly fashion. And so that's why you can read certain gospels and certain gospels will re- reference something while others won't reference it. And you, know, you kind of see that. Again, it's not to say that they're making it up on the spot or they got it all incorrect it's just the way they wrote back then 
We're not really used to that. But that's what, what, what Luke is doing. He's putting it all together. Yes, there's some chronology there. In fact, it's probably the most chronological out of all the Gospels. At least that's what some scholars would say. And I would actually agree with that. Um, but he, he's putting it all together. And he, he brings up Theophilus here. And he refers to Theophilus as most excellent. Now, that's not the 80s version, most excellent kind of thing. That, for, for, uh, that phrase was a, 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 a phrase of attached to nobility or individuals of importance like politicians. And so it's quite possible that Theophilus was uh, some kind of leader, some kind of a politician, possibly. He was a man of, of high rank. And the way it worked is um, like, well, nowadays, if someone goes and re- does a research project, there's some funding that's involved. But with those research, you know, those individuals, those researchers, they have access to databases, they have access to the internet and other sources. Back then, you didn't have that. And so with Luke going out and traveling to this city, traveling to that city, going all over the place, being very thorough in his investigation of the, the, the workings, the accomplishments of Jesus Christ, it probably took a lot of time and a lot of money. And so what would happen is that these individuals would commission these, would, would fund uh, their, their research. And so we see examples of that in Josephus, the writings of jo- Josephus. He was a Jewish historian, and he was commissioned by a number of people, and he would refer to them, most excellent so-and-so, or the honorable so-and-so. And, and it was, again, kind of a way of, of, of recognizing them, uh, that they put a lot of skin in the game. And so, yeah. If Theophilus was a, a, a politician or a, a Gentile of high rank, what he was asking Luke to do was pretty significant because he was, he was basically uh, putting himself out there as a follower of Jesus. I'm fully funding this guy, and I'm a follower of Jesus as well, which would have meant in the first century a lot of issues right there. So there's a, a commitment you see on, on Theophilus's um, part. But here's, here's the reason that in verse 4 that, that Luke is bringing up, so that you, the, uh, Theophilus, may know, and it's the Greek word epigenosis, that you may fully know, fully realize, fully understand the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Now that word, uh, or that phrase, the exact truth, is actually one Greek word that's a compound word that's uh, two, made up of two words that mean literally to not trip up. So basically, Luke is saying, I'm, I, I put this all together, Theophilus, so that the things that you have been taught, the things that you believe will not trip you up. You will know the exactness of this truth. You will know with certainty, with firmness, that this is all true. And that idea of, of certainty and firmness, um, there's my son, um, the, this idea of certainty and firmness isn't just like this intellectual certainty. It, the, the way the word is used is, is, is it's the idea of like, this is a deep in your body, deep in your bone, deep in your guts kind of certainty. Like, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is true. And that's what Luke is saying. I'm wanting to write this. I've investigated thoroughly. I've talked with the eyewitnesses and I've, I've put it all together in an orderly fashion so that the things that you believe, the things that you trust in, you'll know they're true. And we as followers of Jesus can actually pick up Luke and, and, and that's the same for us. We read this. This is, this is, this is not a, a, a myth. This is not a fable. This is true. Everything. Jesus came. Jesus was the Messiah. 
He lived, he died, he rose again, he's coming back. All of it's true. We could know it deep in our guts that it's true. And so now uh, Luke dives right in to the passage and we begin at verse five. And what, what, what Luke does a lot of times is he, he always, again, to prove that, that this is all true, he, he, he grounds the story in, in, in historical moments. And so right here he says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, now, Herod, uh, who later became known as Herod the Great, uh, ruled Palestine from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. He was known for his extensive building projects, particularly uh, the temple in Jerusalem, but he was also known for his uh, cruelty. He was a very, very cruel man. Uh, um, he considered himself the king of the Jews, but the Jewish people were like, not my king. Like, you know, wearing the hats, not my president, not my king. They would do that, and, and that infuriated him. And uh, he knew that if he died, many people would rejoice at, the, at, at his death. And so um, just as an example of how cruel he was, well, he, he's the Herod the Great when the wise men came searching for the child and said, we're here to search for the king of the Jews. Well, he was like tricking, well, tell me where he is so that I might worship him. Reality, he was just wanting to kill him because he was threatened. No, I'm the king of the Jews. But uh, as he was nearing the end of his life, um, he wrote down that he, he knew many people would rejoice at his death. And so to ensure that people were actually mourning at his passing, he, or, he was going to order, uh, it, didn't ever, it never came about, thank God, but he ordered that uh, some prominent Jewish leaders and, um, and a number of random Jews would be picked up and murdered uh, before their families, before all the people, so that on his death, so that people at least would be crying even if there was. So again, it just shows you how messed and twisted he was. So that was the Herod of this time. That's the period that, that Luke sets us in. He says, in the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zacharias from the division of Abijah. Now in uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 24, the, the, the priesthood was divided into 24 uh, divisions. And uh, uh, the division of Abijah was the eighth on the list. Now it was reported that there were about 18,000 priests that served um, and about 750 of those priests served in each division and each of those divisions would have to uh, twice out of the year uh, be required to uh, uh, go to Jerusalem and uh, serve at the temple for at least one week and so Zacharias was part of the, the, the eighth division of the priesthood the uh, division of Abijah and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. So basically, uh, uh, Zacharias was a priest, and he married a, a young lady who was from a ministry family. And basically, in those days, if a priest would marry a wife from a priestly family, it was considered a special blessing. So he was a man who was especially blessed. Look how he did, uh, Luke describes them in verse 6. They were both righteous in the sight of God walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Zacharias and, and, and Elizabeth were not perfect. Okay, they were not perfect, but they were faithful. They were devoted to God. They trusted in God. They, they, they faithfully followed his word. And as a result of their faith, their devotion to God, God viewed them as righteous. I mean, wouldn't you want that on your tombstone? Righteous, which if you're a follower of Christ, guess what? You are. So, amen to that. 
So not only in the sight of God were they righteous, but in the sight of others, they were blameless. It's the idea that they were without fault. No one could lay a guilt on them. But look what it says in verse seven, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. Now, first century, well, for a lot of the, the, the in the history of, the, of Judaism, um, children were considered a blessing. And in fact, they, they still are. Children are considered, are, are a blessing. But the idea came like, if you have a child, you've received favor from God. If you have a lot of children, you've received a lot of favor from God. But the opposite was also true. If you didn't have a child, then you are probably getting the disfavor of God. There's something wrong in your life. There's some sin that's keeping you from receiving the favor from God. And so those who didn't have children kind of had this stigma about them. This, and Elizabeth will describe it as disgrace, which is this idea of shame, insult from the people around her. So here's the, this, this couple. And before God, they are righteous, but they have no kid. And it's like, you, you could think about it, they, they get, you know, Elizabeth and Zechariah get married and, you know, there's an excitement about them get, you know, being married and excited about uh, having children in the future. A few months go by, no child. Okay, okay, well, it's okay. One year goes by, what's going on? Let, let's start praying, let's start praying. More time goes on. People are starting to wonder, why haven't you had a kid? What's going on here? More time goes on. There must be some, something wrong. I mean, you, you, you look blameless. You look like nothing's wrong, that you've got it all together, that you're faithfully following the Lord, but there's got to be something off in your life. And so there's this, this shame and there's this disgrace that's going on in, in, for, for Elizabeth and, and Zacharias. And now they're at the point where they're advanced in years where it's probably not even possible for them to even have kids. So they're just like, this is where we're at. Verse eight, now it happened, or literally it came about that while he, Zacharias, was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So basically these divisions, they would come to the, to the temple, they would serve there for a week, and uh, they would uh, basically cast a lot, and almost like casting a dice. But if the lot landed on a particular name, that priest would go into the temple and they would throw incense onto the altar, uh, which represented the prayers of the people. They would, he would he'd pray for, on behalf of all the people, and then he would come out and he would be considered blessed, and he would most likely never do that ever again for the rest of his life. And so it was considered, to, to be in that position was like, wow, that's a privileged place to actually go into the temple, not the holy holies, that was only reserved for the high priest, but to go into the holy place and perform this, this service. It was a, 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 a real amazing opportunity. And it's, it's funny because uh, it's almost as if Luke is giving kind of a wink and a nod about the casting of the lots. You know, it's in Proverbs, it says the, the lot is cast, but the decision is from the Lord. It, it's just kind of showing this, people might have thought this as chance or luck, but that's not the case. God is working. God is moving. Even in the midst of that silence, God is moving. Even when they cast a lot, God made sure that it landed on Zacharias. So God's at work here. 
So Zacharias goes in, and the whole, verse 10, and the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of incense offering. Verse 11, and an angel or a messenger of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled. (laughs) No duh. He was distressed. Some, it was upsetting him. I mean, can you think about it? He's, he's in the temple. It's already a privilege. Okay, he's at the, the altar. He's putting the, the, the incense and he's praying and all of a sudden, boom, here's this messenger. We don't know how he looked. Was he glowing? Was he big? I don't know, but it was enough to distress him. Again, no one else is supposed to be in there. That would have been enough. Like, hey, what's going on here? So the angel comes. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. Literally, fear fell upon him, seized him. Verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition, your pleas, your requests have been heard. The word there for heard is to be heeded. In other words, God has listened and he is responding. Now, for, for Zacharias, again, what, what he's performing, he's, he puts the incense on the altar and he gives a prayer on behalf of, of Israel. So he says, Lord, may you bless Israel. Lord, may you help us to be more devoted to you. May you fulfill your promises. And all of a sudden the angel comes and says, Zacharias, your petitions, your requests, your pleas have been heard. God has heard it. He's going to respond. But it gets much more personal than that. He says, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. You think about it. Elizabeth and Zechariah, they're married. They're not able to have a kid. A year goes by, they start praying. Lord, bless us with a kid. The people are starting to talk. They're starting to get that stigma that there's something wrong with them, some disgrace, maybe some insult going on. They're praying. One year goes by, they keep on praying. Another year goes by, They pray again, Lord, give us a son. The next year, Lord, give us a son. Next year, Lord, give us a son. Year after year after year for maybe a couple of decades. Now they're at the point where they're old and probably they're like, you know what? Lord, we're we're at the point where we're too old to have kids, but you know, we're going to trust you. We're going to trust you. And as a result of that, God, God saw them as righteous. But here, the angel says, listen, God heard. God's responding. You're going to have a kid. You're going to have a son. It's like, whoa, amazing. You know, we, we talk about prayer uh, when we were going through uh, the book of Philippians a couple of weeks ago. And uh, we talk, you know, the, 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 the way the Bible describes prayer, it's, it's not this... Act, it's, it's not like we're just verbal processing when we're praying. It's not like God's this cosmic soundboard where we just say some stuff and, all right, it's off my chest and I feel somewhat better and then that's it. When we pray, we are speaking to the creator God, the one who created the universe by just simply speaking it into existence. And we're, we're talking to him when we're praying. And this God listens to us he hears us now some of us can go well you know a lot of my problems are really petty and in the grand scheme of things they're really small and insignificant compared to human trafficking and corruption and all this other stuff that's going on 
But guess what? God still listens to you. Even if it's, you think it's petty, God's listening. When you pray, God listens and he responds. Sometimes it's yes, hallelujah. Sometimes it's no. Other times it's wait. It's not the time yet. And Zechariah and, and Elizabeth, it was, it was actually wait. They didn't know it. They were, they were probably content. At this point, they were like, okay, we're, gonna, we're content. We're trusting in you, Lord. We're content that we're never going to have a kid. We're, we're content to endure all the disgrace and shame. We're still going to trust you. And now the angel's saying, you're going to have a son, and you will give him the name John. He's going to be used for a purpose. Verse 14, you will have joy and gladness. You will have joy and great delight, and many will rejoice at his birth. Why? Verse 15, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, just to show his, his dedication, separation for service to the Lord. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. The Holy Spirit's going to indwell this little tyke while it's still developing inside its mother's womb. That's incredible. Verse 16, notice the language here. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to their Lord, their God. He will cause them to change their direction, to, to course correct, to cause them to return to the Lord, to be devoted to the Lord, their God. Verse 17, it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power and the authority of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready, so as to prepare, put in readiness a people prepared, equipped, furnished thoroughly for the Lord. This is staggering. Basically, what, what Luke's trying to bring out is the, the, the promises that God began in the Old Testament, he's fulfilling them. After that 400 years of silence, that silence has been broken, God's acting, it's now happening. And he's going to Zechariah and saying, Zechariah, you're having a kid. Well, that's great in itself, but this kid is going to be that promised one who's going to come and announce and prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And this, you know, it, 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 again, it, it, uh, later on, um, Jesus refers to John the Baptist as like, as far as all the prophets, there's been no one greater than John the Baptist. Why? Because in the Old Testament, the prophets were all talking about, he's coming, he's coming. John the Baptist actually got to say, there he is. Amazing privilege, opportunity right there. It's like, whoa, it's happening. Zechariah, in the midst of this silence, in the midst of you thinking God's not acting, God's not working, God has been working. And he's responding to your prayers. He's responding to his promises. You're going to have a son. He's going to prepare the way for the Lord. The Messiah is coming. Verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, how will I know this? How will I use the Greek word gnosko? How will I know this personally? How will I know this is for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Now, man, we can learn a lot from Zechariah right here because notice he says, I'm an old man. And he doesn't say, and my wife is an old biddy as well. He doesn't say that. What does he say? And my wife 
is advanced in years, literally has gone ahead in years. One, <laughs> one guy, uh, one pastor once said that women are like, a, are, are like wine. You know, like wine, I'm not a wine drinker, but supposedly when wine ages, it gets better, right? Men are like milk. When we get old, all we do is become stinky and curdled. So that's what happens. So... <laughs> <laughs> and some of the moms are like, amen, testify. It's okay, you love your, your you know, big jug of lemon milk, curdled milk. Um, okay, so uh, the angel gives this amazing, amazing news. And Zacharias is just like, ah, uh, how am I gonna know this? Basically, like, what sign can you give me to prove that this is actually going to happen? Because I'm an old guy, my wife is advancing years, we're past that childbearing years. Verse 19, the angel answered, or the angel responded and said, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And he puts the, who stands in the perfect tense. He stood before God, he continues to stand before God. Nothing has changed. That's a big position uh, uh, of, of authority there. He stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Good news is, uh, comes from the uh, verb um, you in Galizo, which means to the bearer to proclaim good news, to announce good tidings. It says, I've been sent. God sent me to bring you this amazing news. Verse 20, and behold, you want a sign, Zechariah? Here's the sign. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, when the, until the day these things come to be. Because you did not believe or you did not accept and trust my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. It's like, I don't care if you don't uh, 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 believe this, Zechariah. It's going to happen in its proper season. And here's, you want a sign? Here it is. You're not going to be able to speak. What's interesting, it looks as though um, Zechariah was not only unable to speak, but probably also unable to hear, because when you go to verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 61 to 63, when they're trying to name the, the child, uh, they're actually gesturing to, uh, to, to Zechariah. It's like, hey, what should we name the child and everything? So there's a possibility that that was the case as well. And so his wife will be blessed because she will have a kid and her husband will be silent for nine months. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> but the angel said, it's going to be fulfilled. Verse 21, the people were waiting for Zacharias. When it says, when the, the word used for waiting is the idea of waiting with anxiety to be in suspense. And they were wondering at his delay in the temple because it's like, okay, wait a minute. Um, what Zechariah was called to do shouldn't take that long. You know, just put incense on the altar, pray, and then come on out. And then when the priests came out, they were supposed to recite the blessing of Aaron in Numbers chapter 6 was, the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you, that, that, that blessing. And that wasn't happening, so they're wondering what's going on. Verse 22, but when he came out, when Zechariah finally came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized, he uses the Greek word epigenosis, they fully understood, they fully knew uh, that he had seen, he had experienced a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. So he couldn't speak or anything. He's just trying to communicate as best he could. 
Verse 23, and when the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant and she kept herself in seclusion. Literally, she hid herself completely from everybody for five months. Well, what was she doing? Verse uh, continuing on, saying, this is the way, or thus in this way the Lord has dealt, or the Lord has carried out with me in the days when he looked with me upon, looked with me, looked with favor upon me. He took notice of me and to take away, to remove, to literally to cut off my disgrace, my reproach, my dishonor, my insults from among men. So Elizabeth is just spending that time praising God. Lord, thank you. You were, this is how, you, you are removing my disgrace. You are blessing me exceedingly. 400 years. 400 years of silence. Not to say that God wasn't actively working, but it just didn't look like. God wasn't saying, bringing any prophets. No new word from God was being proclaimed. No supernatural sign from, from whatever was has happening. Just complete silence. And then all of a sudden, that silence breaks. We have Elizabeth and, and Zechariah dealing with the fact of no child, living in that silence. Yet they trusted. Some of you um, in this room may be wondering when is the silence going to break for me? When is the silence going to break for me? I've been praying. Lord, I've been praying. Where are you? You know how long I've been praying for something. Why aren't you moving? Why aren't you guiding? Why aren't you directing me? Why aren't you showing me what I should do? Why aren't you answering my prayers? Lord, you just seem so silent right now. When is it going to break? When are you going to respond? And when we think about it, there, there are four possible ways that we could respond in the midst of silence. Now, again, when we say silence, it doesn't mean that God is not at work. God is still at work. But sometimes we experience silence. There are four ways that we could respond. Number one, we could respond like the Sadducees. God wasn't moving. Rome was in increasing in power and so they're like well if we can't beat them join them let's try to find a common ground let's compromise and sadly for the past two years uh, as a pastor and as just a follower of Christ in general I have been deeply troubled and heartbroken at how many churches have fall have responded this way in compromise can't beat them join them we're in the midst of a cancel culture so we got to do something in order for people to accept us and not cancel us. Christianity is becoming more and more uh, not popular. People get, are getting upset if you say you follow Jesus as the only way, truth, and the life. So let's find some ways to find common ground with everybody. You know, do kumbaya and, and we'll just compromise. Hey, we'll be able to still do what we're doing and not have any problems with anybody. We see that. That's not the way we're supposed to respond. Jesus never compromised on the truth. We're called to follow his example, so we're not called to compromise. So you could respond in silence as the Sadducees, or number two, you could respond as the Pharisees. 
God's not working. And God's not moving. And so what we need to do, we need to just follow all the rules, follow all the laws, and then God will see how devoted we are, and then he'll respond. So where the Sadducees, it was all about compromise. For the Pharisees, it's all about a religious attitude. It's what we do, and that'll get God to notice us because he's silent right now, so we gotta, we gotta do this. But that's completely the opposite of the gospel. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is not what we do for God. It's what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection. So we can respond with compromise. We can respond by being more religious. religious. Or third, we can respond like the zealots. We're like, well, God's not responding. God's not doing anything, so we need to do something. So it's the idea, the focus is on self-reliance. We, we gotta just, you know, trust ourselves. We gotta, we got this. You know, God, God's not answering. We, we got this. We can, we can trust our own, our own intellect. We can trust all these uh, amazing, you know, scholarly voices that are out in the world to get, you know, what we need or whatever. But again, that's the opposite of the gospel. It's not about relying on ourselves. It's about relying on God. I mean, we really don't bring anything to the table in regards to, to God. It, it's it, God working in us and through us, not relying on ourselves. So we could, in the midst of the silence that we may be experiencing, we could respond as the Sadducees with compromise. We can respond like the Pharisees and just be religious. Or we could respond like the Zealots and be self-reliant, trusting in ourselves. Or fourth, we can be like Zechariah and Elizabeth. And even in the midst of that silence, trust. That's what they did. In the midst of that silence, they still trusted. God, we may not see you moving. We may not see you answering our prayers, but we know you're still there. We know that you're still working. So we're going to trust you. Until you break that silence, we're going to continue trusting you, hoping in you, praying to you. And that's my prayer for you guys as we continue on. Again, the, the theme we want to focus in is the Lord is our salvation. And we're going to actually end up closing, uh, after I pray, uh, close with um, the chorus of that song. The Lord is my salvation. So I don't know where you are in where you are in your life. I don't know what problems that are weighing you down, struggles that you're 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 dealing with, and you may be in a situation that you feel like God's silent. Man, when I was earlier in you know in my faith, I felt like God was right there, constantly speaking. When I read His Word, constantly speaking to me, and now I'm going. I'm I'm still reading, but. I just don't feel that way again. I know we're not supposed to go off of our feelings. We're just supposed to continue trusting. But that's how it feels. It's just like God's silent. And so my prayer for you is that you would be like, you would respond in the midst of that silence like Zacharias and Elizabeth, that you would trust that God is good. God is our, is our savior. He's our redeemer. He's our friend. He's our hope. He's our king of kings and Lord of lords. Trust in him. Whatever you're going through right now, trust in him. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you.
for your word. And Lord, uh, trusting is uh, easier said than done sometimes. We get so distracted with the Mount Everest of problems in our lives that all we focus on is that problem instead of really focusing on the solution, which is you. And so, Lord, may, may you help us um, trust you more. May you help us to, to remember how good the good news is that you are our Savior, you are our Redeemer, you are our King, you are our hope, you are our life, you are our strength. May we trust you. Lord, I pray for those who are dealing with, with struggles, who are dealing with loss, that you would give them peace, that you would comfort them, and Lord, that they would be uh, inspired by Zechariah and Elizabeth and follow after their example. Because Lord, you are a God who does listen to us and you will respond. We may never see it in our lifetime, but we can rest assured that you will respond. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's go.